Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of the American Masters Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Cantor. Okay, um, I'm not Michael Cantor, but I am your host. Uh, my name is Anna Dresden. I write at Saturday Night Live, and I'm also the editor-at-large of Reductress. So, Michael Cantor, I took your job. I came in here. I knocked you out of your chair, and I said, this is my podcast. And you said, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Given that this is um, a season focusing on revolutionary writers, we thought it'd be perfect to bring you in as a as a total revolutionary badass. Uh, yeah, I am very revolutionary, and I am a writer. I start every day by throwing a Molotov cocktail through the windows of a bank, and then I go to work and I write. And what's your take on Susan Laurie Parks, who's the focus of our first episode? She's incredible, and I'd never heard her speak before, but it was so... I just... It was like a warm bath. Like, I could listen to her speak forever. She's just so full of... She's so interested in things, and she's full of passion, and she's, like, one of the most prolific people living right now. Like, she might be the most prolific writer who also isn't, like, manic. <laughs> like, she's able to produce so much work. Just looking at her credits, I mean, Top Dog Underdog, The Red Letter Plays, Venus, an adaptation of the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World... But she doesn't just do plays. This woman is busy. She's got unending energy. She was like, how about I also do films? And then the universe was like, yeah. So her film credits include Girl 6, which was directed by Spike Lee. Ever heard of him? Uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, produced by God herself, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, And Anemone Me, produced by Christine Vachon and Todd Haynes. She's also a, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. Uh, and then for Top Dog Underdog, she became the first African-American woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize in drama. And now I'm officially out of breath forever. I mean, like, and she's still in her prime. She's still making exciting work all the time. And she can sing. And she can sing and play guitar. It's just not fair. She truly is a genius. Like, this is the sort of thing that's not like, oh, you go to school for this thing and that's how you become Susan Laurie Parks. Like, she just is a direct conduit to divine inspiration. And we're so lucky to have her. And this interview starts with a really lovely song performed by Susan Laurie herself. I'm gonna be colored all my life. I am gonna be oh, colored all my life. Yes, I am gonna be colored all my life and we don't got time to take no mess from you I am gonna be Negro all my days and you can think what you like oh but this this ain't no phase cause we keep on keeping on in like a million different ways and we don't got time to take no mess from you all my years you will see our rage and you will see our tears and you will see our light shine as we explore new frontiers and we don't got time to take no mess from you Thank you for having me here. This is lovely. Let me start with a big question. Okay. Why do you write? <laughs> wow. Oh, why do I write? Um, 
you know, sometimes I feel like I have a, a like I'm a, a haunted house, and um, writing helps me deal with the spirits that reside in the house. That's one of the answers. I'm trying to find answers to this. It's not a, something I think about too often. Um, sometimes I feel like I have the flu, and writing is like a a viral infection, and it helps me get well. Hmm. Sometimes I feel like there's something that I want to remember, and writing it down helps with that. Sometimes I feel like there's something I want to forget, and writing it down helps with that. I don't have an answer to this question. (laughs) Maybe I'll have one later. No, those are great answers. (laughs) What about um, in terms of your identity? Does it help you to shape who you are, or is it reflecting who you are? Wow, yeah. Uh, Emerson said, do your... Well, originally he said thing, but do your work so that I will know you, or do your thing so that I will know you. And so by doing my thing, um, I come to know who I am. It's not like I have an identity that I'm trying to express. It's like I have a self that I'm trying to discover. It's not like I have something that I need to say. It's like I find out what I need to say by reading what I wrote. It's true. It, and it's, what's odd is that, you know, maybe I might have said that same thing maybe, you know, 30 years ago when I was fairly new to writing. And I'm saying the same thing now and because that's the truest answer I can find to that question. A number of your plays um, sort of involve violent catharsis, catharsis. Yeah. Um, is that some? Do you have a particular desire to wrestle with violence in our society, or does that come from somewhere? Or oh, that yeah. That just makes great drama. Well, yeah, the viol- Yeah, several of my plays. Well, they're they're tragedies. I'm a great fan of um, for, as a child, a great fan of Greek myths. Great fan. Got a little older. Great fan of um, Greek tragedy. Not such a fan of the Greek comedies, you know. Great fan of tragedies, you know, Oedipus, Medea, Antigone, rah. And then, of course, got a little older, uh, started diving into Shakespeare. Great fan of the tragedies and the histories. Enjoying the comedies. But um, so when I started writing my own stuff, I enjoyed the, the, yeah, the wrestling with the angels that was happening in all those plays. And granted, I always tell my, my students, right now I'm teaching at NYU. I've been there for a while, actually. But I tell my students, you know, um, uh, I've just lost <laughs> my train of thought. <laughs> Something about violence. Yeah. <laughs> Tragedy. Um, uh, it'll, it'll come back to me. I have a five-year-old, you know. So a lot of, <laughs> there's a whole bandwidth devoted to um, the care and feeding of the five-year-old. <laughs> yeah, which actually, you know, feeds in and nurtures the other bandwidths and actually provides me with more and greater bandwidths in other areas. But sometimes the thoughts do slip away and I just let them go. Well, when while we're thinking family <laughs> and children and so on, tell us a little bit about where you're from and how your upbringing oh, influenced your work. Sure, sure, sure. I was born in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, my father was a career army officer initially. I heard recently that they no longer have a lot of gold in Fort Knox, which is kind of a buzzkill bummer. Um, But, you know, so when I was born in Fort Knox, Kentucky, apparently they had a lot of gold there. And it was also right down the road from Lincoln's birthplace, which is cool. So, um, so as so anyways, I was born there, and then my dad was in the army, so we traveled all over the world, living in all kinds of different places, like you know a year here, a year there. He had uh, 
you know, long before I was born, he had a tour in Korea during the Korean conflict. And then during the Vietnam War, he had two tours of duty. And when dad was in Vietnam, we went to live in far west Texas with my mom's family. My dad's from Chicago. My mom's from Odessa, Texas, or Slow Death of Texas, as they call it. Um, since you know, I go back there every once in a while, and I also go back to uh, go to Marfa, Texas, where they have Marfa Public Radio. Um, it's a great town. I have a lot of friends there. But anyway, so so I grew up, and I have a, a, an older sister and a younger brother, and we just traveled around. And we were, you know, we were like often the only black people that some people had ever seen live. You know, we would live in places like uh, Vermont, <laughs> and people would just stare. I remember we went to the fair one year, the Champlain Valley Fair, that's what it was, and a lovely, you know, fair. And um, these two lovely women, these two women of European descent, walked up to me, and I just had to be still. I didn't know them, you know. They weren't like my teachers or anything. And they began to pet me on the head. And I stayed very still. And I didn't ask my mom. My mom, uh, she's a professor. She lives in upstate New York now. My dad passed away uh, 12 years ago from Parkinson's. Very sad. But uh, my mom and dad at the time, you know, they, and my mom's like this. You know, she used to be, she was, she's brilliant and she used to be like a homecoming queen. She's very, very beautiful and brilliant. Um, she, she didn't say anything then. They were These ladies were petting my head. But at home, we went home, and she said, uh, my dad, you know, they sat me down because I was like, you know, I didn't say at the time, WTF, you know, I didn't say that. I was in like four, I was in fourth grade. So I was like, mom, you know, mom, dad, what, what was that? <laughs> what, what were they doing? And my mom and dad said, you know, you are the ambassador of your race. It's like, oh, okay, um, which of course they meant that not a lot of folks see black folks live. Um, in Germany, it was the same thing at the time, and this was before television was everywhere. This is before MTV was in every home, you know, and people would just stare and look. Also, a couple of years ago, I went to um, uh, Cambodia and I was walking around the. Uh, the Temple of Angkor Wat, which, you know, fabulousness. I was walking around, and there were a group of tourists, and I asked them where they were from. They were from a, a relatively large town in, in China. But anyway, they, 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 one of them, the tour guide, he had a flag, you know, for the group. And he, they saw me, he saw me, and he pointed and screamed, and they ran towards me with such intensity. And I just stood there, and I thought, first, they're looking at some beautiful object behind me, because after all, we are in the Temple of Angkor Wat. There's a lot of gorgeousness here. They were running toward me, and I stood very still and stared at them. And they surrounded me and began taking pictures and, of course, video. So, <laughs> And I just stood there and smiled, thinking, I am the... I'm the and, they, and they said, you know, the, the gentleman, the tour guide, they were very lovely. Uh, and the tour guide said, you know, we've never seen one of you in the flesh, you know. So that, yeah, I don't know. That was a long story, where I'm from. So that's kind of where I'm from. <laughs> um, do you ever feel in your work now that mm. do you feel that same sense of you need to be an ambassador for your race mm. or that's not mm -hmm. really a duty anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when coming up um, and my parents, you know, it, it was very specifically, it was something specific to you, you know, the African-American race. That's what they were talking about. But now, as uh, an adult, I realize that I'm an ambassador for the human race. That is one of my uh, callings, crafts, jobs, uh, passions. That's I... I, I will stand for us if necessary. When the aliens come, and they're coming. <laughs> no, they're already here. Um, you know, no, if they want to see examples of, you know, who 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 are you guys? Um, but anyway, so it's, but point being, it's taken a bigger, um, the words expanded, as Great. words do, yeah. 
uh, ways that your parents give you to understand the world when you're a child um, have to be expanded upon when you become when you grow into your adulthood and some things are discarded you know and some things are tucked away and and some things are you can repurpose them like you guys are doing American Masters you take the old stuff and you go hey we can do a new thing with this so it's very cool Tell us about how you first got involved in playwriting. <laughs> That's a funny story. <laughs> I first got involved in playwriting. Um, as a child, I very much wanted to be a writer. Um, I started writing songs, um, singing and writing songs. Um, and then I got into my – and then yeah, around the same time that the women and lovely women in Vermont were petting my head, <laughs> my mom and dad for Valentine's Day one year – um, I was in the fourth grade. They gave me a James Baldwin, Nikki Giovanni, a dialogue for Valentine's Day. These are my parents. So um, I, you know, I read so I was in fourth grade. I, you know, I read some of it. It was it was big. It was deep. But mostly I flipped over the back um, and on the back um, was this wonderful picture of James Baldwin. I think they also gave me like the fire next time. That's right. And on the back of that, that's where his picture was. And um, this, this beautiful man, James, Mr. James Baldwin, writer, you know. So anyway, so fast forward 82, 1982, and I am doing short story writing at Mount Holyoke College because that's where I went. I went to Mount Holyoke College. And um, one of my teachers, Professor Mary McHenry, told me, Mr. James Baldwin, he's going to be teaching a short story writing class, a creative writing class. And uh, why don't you send in one of your short stories and maybe you'll, you know, get in kind of thing. And he was teaching the class at Hampshire College, which was right down the road from Mount Holyoke, part of the five college uh, consortium, I think they called it then. And we could take classes at each other's colleges. So um, so I sent my my short story in, cross, you know, fingers crossed, and I found out a couple months later that I had gotten in the class. And there were 15 students admitted, uh, three from each of the five colleges. We sat around a library table. Uh, we met every Monday afternoon, I think it was. And um, I was, you know, just in awe, you know, the, because he was the guy on the book, you know. <laughs> It was like 10, 10 years later, I'm like, whatever old, however old, and, you know, 18, and I'm taking his class. And the first day of class, um, he walked in, and I thought he was going to be, you know, like his book jacket, a mountain of a man, you know, because he, he was so present on that book jacket cover. And he walks in, and he's he's very uh, fine-boned, very he's, he's petite, not petite, like my height, really, just like about five, six and very fine-boned, and, you know, he had eyes that could see through your best BS, you know. And uh, he sits at the head of the table, and we have class, and each week, as everybody knows, these short story creative writing classes, you know, one week it's your turn, you know, one week it's my turn to present your work. And when I presented my work, I was always really animated, you know. I would, like, gesture a lot. Mm, you know, run, you know, do the voices of the characters and all this kind of stuff. Do all the funny voices and all this stuff. And like halfway through the semester, maybe, uh, he just pulled me aside after class and he said, um, Miss Parks, have you ever thought about writing for the theater? It's <laughs> like, oh... Oh, man, I was, you know, I was crushed. I was crushed because um, I thought he was telling me that I wasn't, like, a sucky short story writer, right? Get thee to a theater kind of thing. I was devastated. I didn't like theater at, at all. I mean, I'll just say that. I don't, you know, I'll stand by it. I, theater, I mean, I, not at all, but theater to me from the outside looking at the men and women who I knew who did theater, there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama off the stage. I didn't appreciate that. There was a lot of attitude. 
There were folks who were, for the most part, American young men and women who told them, darling, darling, darling. A lot of fake Not into that. Wasn't into that. Um, and I just despaired at the thought that I was. it was being suggested that I join the, the fakers when I just longed to be real. But, you know, funnily enough, I figured I'd give it a try. And, uh, well, here I am still doing just that. <laughs> Giving it a try. <laughs> what was your first play? It was called um, The Sinner's Place, I think it was. It was an undergrad at Mount Holyoke. I wrote it for my, um, my uh, you know, what is it called? The thesis project, you know, because I was a, an English and German literature major. We, were in, we lived in Germany. I became fluent in German. Anyway, so it was The Sinner's Place, and it was, it was a, just a family drama kind of play. But there was a lot of um, digging in the play. So I had suggested that there might be a lot of earth uh, on the stage. And I remember sitting in front of the, I don't know what you call it, the review board, you know, where you go and you have to defend your thesis kind of thing. The head of the depart the theater department didn't approve of my play because he thought, what kind of play would have dirt on the stage? And, you know, to my own, you know, taking 50% of the responsibility, I didn't have enough knowledge about theater to talk about, you know, for example, Happy Days, Sam right, Beckett's Beckett. play. <laughs> right um, of Spring. Yeah, I know. We, but the list goes on and on. But I, you know, I did not have that knowledge to answer uh, appropriately. And he just said, why would you have dirt on the stage? And I just said, well, that's what's going on in the play. There must be a a place, there must be a theatrical reality in which that would be appropriate. And he just, you know, it doesn't, you know, I just, there, you know, you go, you, you live your life, you walk your, your path. There are people who help by helping. There are people who help by getting in your way. It's all good. <laughs> now you're teaching. What words of advice do you have, you know, yeah. now that you're in that same chair know, evaluating? Somebody, what, how do you feel what's mm-hmm. most helpful in terms of encouraging young aspiring playwrights? Yeah, I, um, there, there, there was a professor at another uh, university who said, ah, do you, uh, do you tell them whether or not they, they have it, you know, whether or not they've got it? And I said, mm, what do you mean? She said, well, that's your job, you know, you should tell them whether or not they've got it. And I said, no, I... I don't make that decision. I don't I don't render that judgment. The world will tell them that kind of thing. But what I do tell them, I encourage them a lot. And I encourage them uh you know, like a, I you know, I have so I have a 5-year-old. You know, when when Durham my son was learning to walk, like I guess most parents, right? You Come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Come on, come on. Yeah, there you go. All right. Like that. It's a lot of that. Um, this is kind of the way I, I I encourage my writing students. I Come on, come on, come on. You can do it. They will encounter the demons on the path. They will encounter them. I do not have to create them. I also encourage them to work incredibly hard. I, I'm a very diligent and hardworking writer. Um, I also encourage them not to put themselves in a box, you know, because I write plays and screenplays and stuff for TV and songs and written a novel and essays and, you know, so they don't have to just stick to dramatic writing, you know, or playwriting. Um, It's all beautiful. It's all good. It's all writing. Or if they want to also do, you know, painting or whatever, they can... They're going to encounter the same um, demons, issues, things, stuff. Um, they're going to encounter their stuff if they continue to dig, and that's where the gold is. Yeah, I also do Watch Me Work. I teach at NYU, and I do my, my Watch Me Work show in the lobby of the public theater where I'm the master writer chair, which is a great honor. How does yeah. how does Watch Me Work work? Yeah, oh, it's it's my it's my joy. I've been doing it for I think 7 8 years now. So Watch Me Work is I sit in the mostly in the lobby of the public theater and I have a typewriter in front of me. It, well, it's two things. It's a show. It's a play. 
And it's also a free creativity workshop. We invite folks to come in. It's free. You can just come as you are. You know, you don't have to reserve a seat or anything. And so I sit at my writing table with my typewriter mostly. And then the other creative folk, they might be writers or choreographers or musicians or whatever, they sit around. And I set, uh, I say we're going to create uh, a play. And first we're going to create the action of the play together. And then we're going to create the dialogue of the play together. And first the action will be, I'll set my little egg timer, my little kitchen timer. We will work together for 20 minutes. And so we do that. And I, I write on my typewriter, um, partially because I love writing on typewriters and because it also uses both sides of your brain at once, kind of like playing the piano. And the other reason, it creates a sound bed, which I find very helpful to the students. So there's this bed of sound that they can lay their minds in and be sustained by this. So there I am creating the sound bed. And then the timer goes off. And then um, they ask me questions about their work or their creative process. And it's their work or their creative process that they ask me questions about, not mine. If they ask me a question about my like, oh, when you wrote uh, the America play, what did you do? I say, well, it sounds like you're writing a play. And it sounds like you're having difficulty getting the characters to talk to you, for example. And Every week, we do it once a week, um, mostly Mondays, there's a core crowd and then there are folks who come in from all over the world. We live stream so people who can't actually physically make it to the space can come in, you know, through the internet and we answer their questions on Twitter and um, it's lovely, um, you know, encouraging people just go forward in their creative process. It's lovely. It's really lovely. It's a way of giving back, but it's more than that. It's like a, a way of... You know, just helping people create a sustainable practice. Tell me, I, I read a piece, a very short piece you wrote that I think would be great for the podcast, mm -hmm. which is your aha moment that led to a Pulitzer Prize winning play, Top Dog Underdog. Uh oh. Okay. You, you're, you're essentially at a, at a, I have it here. Oh, somewhere. good. Wait, my, uh, it's, uh, it was a, you were offered a job at a theater. They oh, wanted you to be the playwright in residence, yeah, but sure. then it turns out they didn't want you to do that. Gosh, and Lord have mercy. Yeah. That was this moment where yeah. you dove into. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that moment when you just reminded me of it because I forget these things is a way to sustain oneself in a life of in a life period, not a life of creativity, in a life this story and when you just reminded me of it it kind of brought like because it remind it to come back to this story and remind myself that this is how we might keep on keeping on to me is this story yes so I was a, a much younger writer and um, a theater seemed very graciously uh, wanted me to be their writer in residence not a theater in New York City and so I, I went, you know, I would have to live there and all that, and it was lovely. And they were going to, they said, you know, they were going to produce my plays and all this stuff. And I got there, and for whatever reasons, and theaters have so many issues that are going on behind, you know, the posters, you know. There are financial issues and all kinds of things. Well, for whatever reason, they decided that it wouldn't be feasible to produce my plays there. I was devastated. Not a devastation. <laughs> I was devastated. See, but the word comes up, and I was devastated. Boom. And then I thought, well, I'm here um, in this community. What, what might I do? And that wasn't like, you know, ta-da, the triumphant moment. That was the bleak, I'm lying down with my face in the dirt, lifting my chin just a little bit, going... Well, I guess I'm here. Might there be something nice for me? So I looked around, and there was, um, of course, always, every theater, there was a literary office. Yay! Back in the day when I was moving around a lot, I didn't have any friends to speak of. But I always had the library. Thumbs up for the library. Thumbs up for the public libraries, too, by the way. 
Um, so I always had the library. So a place of refuge was always where the literary thing was happening. So in this theater, it was no different. I kind of presented myself to the literary manager, and I said, hey, you know, I'm here. And, she, and they said, of course, we know that. And I said, I won't really be having a lot to do, so I thought maybe I could come and help you guys with something, you know. And they said, well, um, we have a big pile of scripts. We have some cleaning up to do. Their office was a mess. So I went out, and I, I we have a big pile of scripts you could help us read. We have some tidying and vacuuming, and, and you can come and hang out with us whenever you want. So I, I went out to the store. I bought them a tea kettle and some cups. Because I thought every day we can have tea and we can sit and read scripts and make it like a little salon, you know, make it fun. So I did this, and every day I would just help them clean the office, basically. And uh, then one day I, I was doing something, I was like, cleaning something, and I, and I looked at the literary manager and I said, two brothers, Lincoln and Booth, but um bum And I started laughing, one of my really... <laughs> I can't really do it. I can't fake it. Let's see if I can do it. <laughs> the laugh that a fish has when they're hooked, you know, the laugh, because the hook, you know, if, if God is, if the spirit is a fisherwoman or fisherman, uh, and they and they send the hook down, you know, and the, all the hook, all the lures are are floating around in the ether, and one of them hooks you deep down, deep, and they pull. And you go, oh, I'm hooked. Or like when you fall in love, the same kind of thing. Oh, I'm hooked. And it's sweet. And it's a little scary. And so there I was laughing <laughs> like that. And the literary manager said, sounds like you are you need to write something. And I said, yeah. And she said, go, go back to your apartment and write. And I said, yeah. And I went back to my apartment and wrote it in three days. It was effortless writing and a great gift. For people who don't know anything about the play, just give them the broadest sense sure. of what, what's it about. Sure. It's um, two brothers, two uh, men of African descent who are also brothers, uh, blood brothers. Their names are Lincoln and Booth. Their father named them Lincoln and Booth as a joke. Uh, and, you know, we know American history and those of you who, you know, from other lands who are up on American history as no, that it doesn't even make any sense because we're not even up on American history. But anyway, Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. Um, I'm not good at giving little short things. Two brothers, they don't get along. And one of them, Lincoln, is very good at throwing the cards, meaning he's very good at this shell game, basically, this scam, basically, called Three Card Monty. He's amazing at it, but he doesn't want to do it anymore because he knows it's going to be the death of him. And Booth is not really good at anything. Well, he's really good at shoplifting, but other than that, he's not really good at anything. And so he wants to become good at something. And so he begs his big brother Lincoln to teach him the cards, man. Just teach me the cards. And Lincoln don't want to teach him the cards. And so finally Lincoln does teach him the cards. And it's uh, it's a real lesson for everybody. <laughs> I don't know. I'll think of a better way. Oh, i got to work on that. It's a tragedy, but it's also very funny. I mean, all my plays, yeah, they might have violence in them, but they also have a lot of jokes, a lot of humor. Um, it's what happens when you come close to the bone and when you're in a, a real place. There is, you know, humor right along with despair, in my experience, anyway. So... How would you say your work's unconventional, like the 365 plays in 365 days? Exactly. exactly. Well, that's a great question. I think um, I guess it came out of a very simple impulse, 365 days, 365 plays. After I won the Pulitzer in 2002, I wanted to say thank you to theater. And I thought, well, how should I do that? I'll just say thank you every day. How will I say thank you every day? I'll just write a play a day for a whole year. <laughs> This is how my mind works. So I sat down at my desk right that very day, and I wrote a little play. And then I wrote another one and another one and another one, and a whole year went by, and I had all these plays. I had more than 365 because I, some days I wrote two. 
So um, some are, and they're very experimental and interesting and beautiful in form. Some of them comment on the on the goings on of the day. Some of them don't. Um, just a little asterisk. Uh, this year, uh, I started writing uh, a play a day, starting on inauguration day, and I've written a hundred days, a hundred plays for his first hundred days, and those directly comment on things that are going on uh, on our on our world landscape. But with the 365, uh, my dear friend Bonnie Metzger, who's a wonderful writer and producer, she said a couple of years later, she said, did you ever write those plays? And I said, yeah, I did. She said, well, what'd you do with them? And I said, oh, they're just sitting in a drawer at home. And she rolled her eyes uh, like a good producer would and said, we're going to put them on. We're going to do a worldwide festival. So we called people we knew and they called people they knew. And before we knew it, we had folks all around the world uh, who had committed to doing uh, either the whole year or a section of the plays, or they formed a theater company exclusively to do the plays. And it was a beautiful, uh, unifying uh, festival. We didn't make a dime. You know, we didn't. We just let the plays be done for perform for free. You know, there was no money um, that we were trying to make, but we were. Um, making community and it was beautiful I still run into people again who say I, I did that when I was in you know it was it's really great they, I did week 37 you know I was this character it was really beautiful a recent play of yours uh, Venus just finished a revival oh, yeah. run at, at the Signature Theater here in New York right and can you briefly describe that sure that show sure people? let's see that might be easier um Venus is uh, based on the true life historical story of a woman named Satie Bartman, uh, who was from uh, the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, southern Africa. Uh, this takes place in eighteen early 1800s. And little Sarah was taken to England and exhibited as a freak in a sideshow. And she was from a peoples, uh, a people called the Hottentots or the Khoisan people, who uh, some of them, uh, mainly women, were physically remarkable because of the large amounts of subcutaneous fatty deposits they had on their behinds, or it's called steatopygia. And so anyway, so she was taken to England and exhibited, and people would gawk at her bottom and so it's a story of, of uh, the Venus Hottentot, of the Hottentot Venus. And uh, it's also the, 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 the play about um, love and the way love works sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, what I really don't do, I don't think about my plays or my novels or my songs too much. I, I, I don't. I, what I do a lot of is I write them and I work on getting you know, the words right on the page. Or um, I was talking to my fiancé this morning and he, says, um, he said, you're a hacker trying to recode the system, trying to get us to think in more effective ways. It's great. Upcoming at the signature are the red letter plays. Yes. And one of them includes another language within the play. Right. And right. can you just tell us a little bit about those plays and sure. wh why they're, it sort of makes sense for them to be done now and, and what that use of another language within a play right. Right. does? <laughs> yeah, another – yeah, so hmm. – well, I'll tell you mm. – I'll tell you, because because the plays that we're doing at Signature, I'm in the middle of a residency one at Signature, which is uh, Signature Theater. It was started by founding artistic director Jim Houghton. Who was passed away? Who passed away last year? And about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, Jim came to me. He, we met in a coffee shop in the Waverly Diner on Sixth Avenue in Waverly Place, I guess it is. And he said, uh, "I really want you to do a residency one at Signature, which is where they do they pick one playwright and they do like four of your plays, four of your old old plays, like your deep." state, your deep bench plays. You're like, you're like, oh, plays you wrote like 20 years ago, baby. They're going to pull them out and do them. It's very exciting. It's very terrifying. <laughs> but uh, he said, you know, I want to do, I want you to do a residency one. And I said, great. 
maybe, no. Um, but then I thought about it, and I thought it would, uh, could be a beautiful thing to look back or at least allow the folks coming up uh, to see some plays of mine that they had perhaps only read. So that's why we're doing the plays we're doing this season, because that was Jim's wish to do those plays. But the red-letter plays, as they're called, which is Effine and In the Blood. So I was in a canoe in, like, Nantucket years ago, and I was paddling in the canoe. I was in the back of the canoe, and I had a friend paddling in the front. And um, I said to her, you know, I said, I'm going to write a riff on the scarlet letter, and I'm going to call it F and A. <laughs> that laugh again. <laughs> I'm laughing like that, which means I've been hooked. We get the canoe back to shore. I'm walking on the, the you know, the muck or whatever it is. And I'm thinking, oh, it's still a pretty good idea. Uh, so what do I have to do to write this play? I have to, I have to, I have to read the Scarlet Letter because I hadn't ever read the Scarlet Letter. So I figured I'd go home and read it. So I read it and loved, love it, loved it, and started writing this play called Effine, which was nothing like the Scarlet Letter at all, of course. And then, but I was having so much trouble writing it. I would write draft after draft after draft. Then finally I decided to take a draft on the screen of the computer and delete all the things that didn't work. So delete, 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 delete. Like an hour later, I deleted the whole play. I was up to the title, and I said, oh, that still works. <laughs> so the title was still had still hooked me, but I said, but what's the story? And I had thrown everything out out, so to speak, off to the left side. This is all in my head, you know, psychologically. So there was, it's like there's a waste paper basket on the left side of my body, and I just kind of discarded everything. So out of that trash heap, I heard this voice, you know, like writers hear voices. I heard this voice, and it said, I've got five children by five different men, you know, and I said, wow. That's, but that's not FNA. And the voice said, no, it's called In the Blood. I went, oh, wow. So I wrote that play very quickly. So Hester La Negrita has five children by five different men, right? And in the play, that's the other thing she said, the actors play the children and their parents. Okay? Wow. So I had that play. And once I had that play, then FNA was very easy to write because it was like two children in the womb and they were trying to both get out and they couldn't get out. So in the blood had to come first and then FNA came out very nicely. Um, so what about this language? <laughs> so in FNA, yes. In FNA, it's a, it's, a, it's a play about a woman named Hester, another Hester. Her name is Hester Smith, though. Not to be confused with any other Hester. And she um, is an abortionist and wears, because she's an abortionist in this land, this, this, this fabricated country, she wears, she has been branded with the letter A. Um, a in uh, the language of talk, this made-up language you're referring to, the abanatsip, abanatsip, which is the abortion. And so all the abortionists are branded with this letter A so that people will know who they are and can either discriminate against them or go to them seeking assistance. And, uh, yeah, so the language that they speak in the play, the language that women speak, is called talk. And it's, yeah, it's a made-up language. <laughs> it's a, And they, when they have things to say that they don't want the men to understand, when they might curse each other out in the street. They'll blurt out things and talk. Um, some, sure, pl plenty of men uh, learn talk. Uh, we'd say these days maybe they'd meet more of the, the, the men who learn talk, who take the time to learn talk, the language of women, are the enlightened guys, the cool guys, you know. So um, not all the guys are... Are, are cool like that. But there's a few lovely men in the play who have taken the time to learn talk, you know. Um, but mostly it's old language that women use when they got to speak. 
when they got to preach. <laughs> yeah. Great. Wonderful. Uh, that's a long, that was a no, long answer. No, that was a great question. answer. Um, yes. So, so many writers, playwrights now, yeah. are drawn into, you know, this golden age of television sure. with one camera or episodic, what have sure. you. What's your take on sort of the importance or the the value of plays and playwriting, play you know, sure. theater as a medium as opposed to all the various, you know, so right. many different electronic mediums sure, to sure. convey that same language. Sure. Same. There is um there's a there's a lot of great media great media? Media? Yeah. Great ways to tell your story out there, right? Um yeah, like you said, there's film they've been out there for a long time and, and television now is f- amazing and fabulous and then all the different quote unquote networks or whatever they're called these days that offer uh, content <laughs> um, and then sure then there's yeah there, there's gee there's like YouTube and the radio um, there's nothing to my mind I mean and I think it's all great and I enjoy writing for all of it there's nothing quite like being alive, <laughs> meaning being alive and being alive, watching someone else who is living, doing something. And that is theater. That's, or that's life, depending on where you are, you know. So there you are sitting in your seat, let's just say, in a conventional theatrical experience. And there's the actor. There she is on stage like last night, Elizabeth Marvel doing Mark Antony. Boom, girl. We were all like, yeah, there's nothing like that. I mean, surely if we had seen it in a film or on a TV show, yes, we would have been equally, well, we would have been excited. But the level of excitement that we were feeling, because kinetically, energetically, she was transmitting the spirit. You know, I mean, I grew up as... as, as Catholic, you know, so I say like the Holy Ghost, you know what I mean, you know, or they say in you know contemporary culture we say girl on fire, you know, but you think of the saints, you know, there she was transmitting the spirit, you know, all the actors, there there they are doing that, they're transmitting the energy, um, that kind of transmission, uh, Shakti Pot, you know, old school, like there is the guru holding the light so that you can see your soul. You don't really get that from any other medium. Um, There's a lot of, you can get that light shown at you through film, all that light up there on the screen. You can see into yourself in a new way. But, you know, a living person sitting next to a living person, there's something to that. There's that old, oh, it's like, oh, it must be like Jesus. (laughs) Where two or more are gathered in my name, you know, Yamo be there. I mean, he didn't say that. You know what I mean? So that kind of, he understood that that is how the spirit, that is a beautiful way for the spirit to be communicated. That's what theater can do. And on top of all that, the beautiful stories and the dancing and all that. But that's just, I think, a secondary, tertiary. That's extra. That's icing on the gravy, you know, the story, all that. It's just real time. There's something still powerful about real time. Um, For you, how is writing music and creating music for your shows Mm -hmm. or otherwise Mm -hmm. different from writing down on paper? Sure. Sure. How is writing music different from from writing, yeah, just writing down on paper, like writing a screenplay or a teleplay or a play, just dialogue, right? And in my experience, the cool thing about it is that it's all the same process. Uh, it begins in a variety of ways. Sometimes I'm in a canoe. Sometimes I'm in someone's literary office making tea, you know, or dusting the, the cobwebs out of the corners. So it, the spark happens. Then it, after that, I get hooked, right? Ho, 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 get hooked. And then what happens is my I start to look for a groove, in a, in a play or a movie, because I love outlining. People don't think I, but I outline like a mofo. I love it. Um, 
because uh, Van Gogh made sketches. Yo, if Van Gogh can make sketches, I can make an outline. <laughs> no problem. So, but what I do is my mind, my whatever you call it, my writing thing is moving around like a divining rod, trying to find the groove. It's not a river. It's not a stream. It's a dry riverbed. And my mind is searching like a divining rod, trying to find the groove, or like a vein almost, you know, a dry vein, no blood in it yet, no water in it yet. Then I find it. And writing the several drafts is the looking for it. Sitting at my with my guitar in my lap in front of the music stand, just strumming chords mindlessly, is looking for that groove. And then I find the groove, and I settle into the groove, and then I just ride the groove. And I settle into the groove and ride the groove, and the water comes, and the blood comes, and I'm just... Um, it's the same process so what's different though is with the with in writing a song and I'm motion I'm doing the gestures as I talk about I'm actually strumming the guitar and I have help because the musical the changes the chord changes are the musical group and I used to write also on the piano but then I I didn't have a piano for a long time so I just just use the guitar mostly now to write and I would just try to find some changes that felt right and once I found those changes and a rhythm it's uh, it's usually some kind of you know oh first it starts with the rhythm right the rhythm will tell me and then the changes are going to and then I can get that and then the words just come that's what the song was a play or a movie I don't have the music to go by with or to help me so it's more like just finding that riverbed finding that riverbed and then I find it and I don't know if that's really helpful, <laughs> but that's what it ha- that's what happens. Um, and it's also it's also oral, so it's like finding the riverbed, and then I can hear it. I have these tattoos on my arm, um, my left arm, that say um, it's from the Yoga Sutras, and it's the same tattoo three times. It's just printed in different sizes. And, and anyone who speaks Sanskrit or Hindi is gonna like. Anyway, my pronunciation's awful. It's Ishvara Pranadhanani. Ishvara Pranadhanani, which is Yoga Sutra, the Yoga Sutra by, Patanj- uh, by Patanjali. Yoga Sutra 1, 2, 3, number 1, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 20, two, 3. Anyway, Yoga Sutra 1, 2, 3, Ishvara Va, which means submit to the will of God or go with the flow. Go with the flow. So I have this tattooed on my arm three times, and it's a joke because it's it's where people well, people wear watches again these days. But when I got the tats, people weren't wearing watches for a little while, and so the joke was, "What time it is?" And then you look where your watch is supposed to be, and you go, "It's time to go with the flow," like that. So I would do that for years. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, is that finding the flow, whatever I write, I have to find the flow. And so, and that's beyond, that's, that's, that bypasses many known forms of dramaturgy. You're out there, you're like, listening to the big spirit talk to me. I'm here, I'm ready. You find the groove, you ride it. And then it will assemble itself. And what's interesting is what I found over time. Those dry riverbeds are old stories. Because a lot of my stories or plays or songs, they're what I call, and I, there's an English word for this, abhängig, abhängig. It's a German word, but what I say, when I say it, it means uh, like dependent upon, but actually when I say it, abhängig, like a, a, like a coat hanger, you can hang a coat on. So the dry riverbed is like a place where an old, old story used to live. And, or where uh, it's where the water was, right? And so I got to find where the water was, and then I write in there. So there's not a lot of conventional thought that goes on in my writing process. There's a lot of uh, adherence to the bigger voice. So 
Yeah. That's great. Um, I, I thought it's that true. that's the perfect segue to, to hear a song. Yeah, so um, this is a song from FNA. Um, it uh, the, That play has about uh, 10 songs in it that I wrote for the play. And this song is called The Making of a Monster. So, Grant, again, this is just asterisk. I wrote this play in 1999, something like that. Okay, so it's an old, for me, it's an old play. Um, so, uh, but this, the, one of the character who sings the song in this play, his name is Monster. And the deal with Monster is he was incarcerated as a very young man. Um, he, his name used to be Boy. And he was incarcerated as a very young man for a very small crime, like he stole some, you know, meat or something from the butcher's shop, okay? So a very small crime. And uh, a little girl, a little rich girl, saw him, and she told on him, as she was instructed to do by her parents. And uh, the, the, the authorities came and got him, and they locked him up. And um, the circumstances of this, uh, this invented world... Uh, which is the world of the play, are that you can't see your loved ones unless you pay a certain amount of money. So the mother, Hester Smith, in this play, is always trying to save up enough money to see her son. And uh, anyway, the, how can I say this? Monster, boy grows up into monster, and he gets out of jail, and he reconnects with his mother and sings her this song. But about the groove... Yeah, I wrote this song such a long time ago, but you can, you can hear the you can hear the rhythm. Boom, boom. I kind of like that chord, and the A minor chord always works for me. So, and then the words just kind of like they bubble up out of the ground, like you know the Beverly Hillbillies, like up from the back, up from the ground come a bubbling crude like that this is this is how i write so he sings this to his mother you think it'd be hard to make something horrid no it's easy you think it would take so much work to create the devil incarnate no it's easy smallest seed it grows into a tree and a grain of sand pearls in the oyster and a small bit of fate in the heart it will inflate and that's more so much more Preach. Cause it's easy to say, 
Wow, I don't know how to follow that. That's like so. Well, it's like how, an old song. Let me. I know, but it's beautiful. Oh, um, thank you. But it's beautiful. it's like an old song, you know. I mean, for me, it's like a, you know, I wrote it in like whatever 1999, and I just started singing it uh, this past about year and a half with my band Sula and the Noise. We have, I have a little band, and um, people were like, "Whoa, did you just write that?" And I'm like, "Nah, it's old. I wrote it a long time ago." When you were deciding to put music in that play, were yeah. you were you literally thinking, you know, Bertolt Brecht and I no. want to sort of model it after something? Or what was the inspiration to add? To, sure, to- sure. Well, I've had music, like my very first play, The Sinner's Place, had a song in it. So I've, I've always, um, in a way, hidden songs in my plays. Like my writing just on the page is, people say it's very musical. I've always thought I'm writing opera without the music like the death of the last black man in the whole entire world aka the negro book of the dead is very much an opera without music um and i'm always tucking songs in the plays and yes well when i got to fna and i really want to write more songs of course bertolt brecht and kurt weill were my models um again growing up in germany learning german being fluent in german big fan of bertolt brecht i tell my students oh, this is maybe what i tell my students um yeah, they're uh, Shakespeare, Euripides, um, Sophocles, Brecht, DWMs. They are they are dead white men, but they also were damn good writers. Uh, DGWs, and so let us just acknowledge. If we're going to acknowledge one, let us acknowledge the other. So, but anyway, so I'm, I'm really yeah. Brecht is awesome sauce, and so yeah, sure, big fan of his. This season, we're we're kind of looking at writers who were revolutionary in a way, maybe unconventional. Sure, And sure. I'm wondering, in terms of women writers, are there yeah. those who have been most inspiring to you or whose work you think just broke the mold and, and you're sort of standing on their shoulders or... Oh, well, that, in that, in that I, I really appreciate you asking that question because I don't think I get enough of an opportunity to sing the praises of people who have come before me and made my journey in the arts, you know, easier, a little bit easier, a lot easier, you know, like Intazaki Shange. I think she blew the mold out of the frickin' park, yo. Um, like Adrian Kennedy, blew the mold out of the mold out of the mold, you know what I mean? Um, you know, these, uh, there, those two women especially coming up, uh, well, this, those two artists coming up for me when I was getting started, uh, when I finally said, okay, I guess I'll try playwriting. Those two uh, artists were the ones I looked at and went, wow, they're doing extraordinary things. And and I can learn a heck of a lot from them. Uh, so I, I, I will always be grateful to, to their shining examples. If you think back to yes. to what James Baldwin sort of left with you, if if you search for inspiration one day, what did you get from him, apart from just saying, "Do play, do playwright"? Yeah. Well, he wrote, you know, you know, it's a, from the. I'm sure it's all well. People, he, uh, he, where he was teaching Hampshire College, you didn't give grades, you gave evaluations. So he had to write each of his students uh, an evaluation, and he. Wrote well. Mine says an astonishing, beautiful creature who may become one of the most influential artists of our time. Something like that. I, I got it wrong. I don't. I don't read. I, anyway, point is, blew my mind. <laughs> the point is, he believed in me. I read somewhere that Abraham Lincoln had a similar experience. Someone when he was coming up thought he just might make something of himself. And Abe Lincoln didn't have the heart to prove him wrong. And I think James Baldwin, that's the most, well, two things. One, he encouraged me. And again, like I said, and he encouraged me and I didn't have the heart to prove him wrong. Um, and he also taught me how to conduct myself in the presence of the Spirit, you know, um, the great spirit, the thing, whatever you want to call it, the thing that knows more than you and however you want to define that, um, the thing that is bigger than you, um, 
how to conduct myself in the presence of that great thing, um, how to be respectful and mindful and attentive like you would be attentive to a lover, how to be um, just awake. You know, we have that saying these days, you know, get woke. Um, get woke every day, every step you take, um, every hand you shake, every person you, whose eyes you come into contact with. It's an opportunity to wake up and see yourself in them. It's a big job. I'm glad I'm one of the people doing it, i got to say. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Really you so guys are awesome. This is such so wonderful. Well, let me just close by saying on behalf of public television, public media, and American Masters, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. That was playwright Susan Laurie Parks in conversation with our executive producer, Michael Cantor. If you're in New York, you can see Susan Laurie's The Red Letter Plays being performed at the Signature Theater beginning August 22nd. Hey, it's Kate Haney here. I'm the digital producer for American Masters' Inspiring Woman Project. Is there a woman in your life who has inspired you? It could be anyone, your mother, a friend, or a teacher. Have they expressed themselves artistically, worked to better their community, achieved academic success, or empowered others and embraced diversity? Share her story today and join American Masters as we celebrate the powerful, creative, and innovative women in our lives. You can publish her story on pbs.org forward slash inspiring woman or using hashtag inspiring woman PBS on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters podcast has been designed by Christiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Sunashima. And I have been your host, Anna Dresden. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash americanmasters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast. <laughs>